This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick three of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. When you think about it, most good high stories have a lot in common. They all seem to involve a charismatic gang of robbers, a sophisticated plan of attack, and a smooth getaway. Plus, they usually take place against a glamorous backdrop, something that sets the wealthy victims apart from the wily thieves. Think shiny casinos or slick downtown banks. So if you had to guess, where would you say Australia's biggest bank heist happened? Sydney? Melbourne? What about Mwilumba? It's a country town in northern New South Wales. Our first story takes us there, all the way back to one fateful night in 1978. The bank building has been standing squarely on the corner of the main street for 133 years, quietly doing its business as the generation strolled past, unassuming and solid with its thick brick walls and flat roof. Its strong room was once considered the most secure place to stash the cash of the region. But it was not, as it famously turned out, impregnable. In the sweltering summer of 1978, hippies still roamed the hills around the Tweed Valley. What is now suburban sprawl around the New South Wales northern rivers town of Mowillenbar was dairy farms and wooden farmhouses. There were large agricultural and farm supply stores. It was a subtropical, rural place of cows, cane and banana plantations. No one locked their doors. Across town, the plume of white steam rose from the sugar mill. In the shadow of the great mass of the extinct volcano that is Wollombin, Mount Warning, it was, says former Mayor Max Boyd, a quiet little town. A place of not much note except to those who lived there until the night of 23rd November 1978, when a major crime was committed and Mwilumba became the surprise scene of the biggest bank heist in Australia's history. It was audacious, meticulous, consummately professional, old school. It has gone down in history as the perfect crime in which no one was physically hurt. In 43 years, it has never been solved an enduring mystery that has achieved folklore status in the small northern rivers town. The Trans-Security Armoured Truck, which did a run of the banks between the Queensland border and Sydney, was a familiar sight in Mwilumba, sometimes stopping the traffic as armed guards unloaded it into the overnight holding bank. Every second Wednesday, there would be a big payroll from the federal government on board to meet pension checks and wages. Sometime on the Wednesday night of 23rd November, the locks at the back door of the bank were picked. There was no alarm. Using an electromagnetic diamond-tipped drill, which clamped onto the safe and allowed them to drill 18-centimeter holes within 5 millimeters of the crucial point in the locking mechanism, they then fed through a medical cystoscope with wires to manipulate the tumblers in the safe's locking mechanism. A fraction of a millimeter either way, and they couldn't have pulled it off. They left no clues, no mess, no trace. But it was a while before anyone knew this, because ingeniously, they jammed the safe, removing the two combination lock dials and the safe handles before slamming the door shut. Ample time for a clean getaway. Even these days, the main street of Mwilumba is almost deserted by 10 p.m. on a weeknight. 
by Alan Mitchell was in the Imperial Hotel on that night in 1978. We were literally looking straight at the bank from the Imperial front bar, and I walked across to my car, which was parked right in front of the bank, and didn't see or hear anything at all. I'm a boilermaker by trade, so I know what was required to do what they did, and to do it so stealthily was incredible. The police station, a hundred meters away, within sight of the bank, was staffed all night. The late Mervyn Gordon was working on the telecommunication system in the post office on the other corner that night, says his widow Edna. He didn't hear or see a thing. No one heard or saw anything. At 7.30 the next morning, an MSS security guard noticed the back door of the bank was open. Local locksmiths and four Chubb safe experts flown by charter from Brisbane worked on the safe door for more than five hours before admitting defeat. Finally, Tweedshire Council workmen blasted their way in via the external wall of the bank and the thick reinforced concrete wall of the strongroom, using jackhammers, chisels, oxyacetylene cutting equipment, and sledgehammers. Outside, waiting in the heat, a journalist described the suspense as electrifying. It was 4.30pm before the hole was big enough for New South Wales Police Chief Inspector Frank Charlton to put his head in, look around and utter the immortal words. They got the lot. The hole was $1.7 million, which today would be about $10 million. The money was untraceable. And by then, according to a career criminal now taking credit for the heist, the robbers and the money were already back in Sydney and having a nap. Suddenly, the amazed town of Mwilimbo was overrun with police. I never saw so many police in my life, said local shop owner Peter Moore. They were crawling over the rooftop of the bank and the street. We did not know there was that much money in the bank in such a little town. It's the biggest thing to happen in the town since the flood of 1954. The news was flashed around the world. Peter and his father, Herb, were not slow to capitalize on the town's sudden infamy. They soon had a lucrative side hustle, selling Got the Lot, T-shirts, tea towels, caps and beer glasses from their menswear store in the main street. Gordon Smith, a contract cleaner, came in at midnight to clean up the mess made by the council workmen. It was a hot, hot night. There was just a complete mess in the bank. We removed a lot of rubble and bricks, and they made the mistake of turning the fans on and there's just all the dust everywhere. It was hazy. We were there for seven hours. While the police turned the nearby Gold Coast upside down, looking for clues, checking hotels and motels for suspicious guests, in Mwilimba there was wild speculation. Had the criminals been among them casing the joint? Could they have been sitting on a bar stool beside them in the Imperial Hotel? There had to have been an insider who knew that amount of reserve bank money was coming in to be held overnight on that particular night. The robbers had known the layout of the bank. Who told them? Twenty-five detectives from three states were brought in to fail to catch the criminals. All leads ran dry. No one claimed the $250,000 reward. The money and the robbers vanished. But, according to reports at the time, it had the magnetic drill gang written all over it. They had used the same method 14 times in the previous 19 months. 
For decades, the finger has been firmly pointed at Graham the Monster Kennyberg, a one-time master safecracker and the brains behind the gang. The Monster was shot dead in his driveway in December 2003, a victim of the Melbourne gangland killings. But now a notorious career criminal has come forward to say the Monster had nothing to do with it. Birdie Kid is taking the credit. Robert Bertram Birdie Kid is 88 and has Parkinson's disease. He has spent 27 years in prison and has been described by police as a nasty, vicious, and violent criminal. Last year, he released two volumes of his memoirs with the author Simon Griffin, and he has made plans for a third to be released after his death. He writes, I have read misleading accounts of my career for decades. In his memoirs, he takes credit for the infamous fine cotton horse racing scandal and claims to have smuggled himself inside the luggage hold of a Sydney-Melbourne flight to steal $2 million from a drug cartel mid-flight. He also claims he masterminded the Mwilimba Bank robbery. It was never about Mwilimba or the bank, Kid says. It was about the armored truck and the money in it. Kidd and his cohorts had been following it up and down the coast for months working out where to hit it along the route. The reason Mwilimba came into the frame was pragmatic. After all, the detailed reconnaissance it decided the best option was to rob the bank instead of the armoured van. My rationale was that hitting the van could be messy and replied with guns. Someone could end up getting killed and we could get charged with armed robbery or murder. If we hit the bank, there would be less risk of anyone getting hurt. And at worst, we would face break and enter. Kid is adamant that his exceptionally reliable informant about the lucrative job on the night of the 23rd of November was not a Mwilimba cop, security guard, or bank employee. He says, I feel sorry for those who were accused. In a small town, the suspicion would have been difficult to endure. He was going to do the job himself. A number of people were involved and a lot of work had been done to set it up. But he had been unexpectedly detained in prison after a botched job on the Maruba Bay Hotel. But he already had a team set up. They planned it with precision for three months before the heist went down, he says. In prison, on the night of the robbery, Kid went over and over it in his head. They followed the armored truck on the last leg of its journey to be sure they wouldn't be opening an empty vault. Before going ahead with the robbery, they went for a light dinner in beautiful Byron Bay. The reason no one saw or heard anything in Mwilimba was because they arrived close to the early hours. It was a pitch black night. A lookout stood outside. There was no one around. Kid had insisted they had to jam the vault door before they left, but if they couldn't do that, they were to lie low for three or four days at a shack he had on the Gold Coast. There is nothing from Kid's account of the robbery and its aftermath that was not in the public domain at the time. The whole thing, he writes, was broadcast live on all channels. We watched in the prison common room with delight. It was a fantastic result. He claims the hole was a lot more than the $1.7 million that was reported. It was well over $2 million. 
and the robbers, he says, will never be caught. That is because they are almost all now dead, after living rich lives on the proceeds of this job. He says he is the only one left standing, and that some of the money was distributed to families who had someone in prison. The police are officially still investigating this crime. The file is still open. Detective Chief Inspector Brendan Cullen says he is dubious about Kidd's claims. But having said that, if he has got information relevant to that inquiry, I would be happy to talk to him. If Bertie Kidd, infamous gangster and standover man, is to be believed, the great mystery of Australia's biggest bank heist has been confessed and solved. The mythology is no more. According to Bertie, they got the lot. And they got away with it. Still the perfect crime. That was They Got the Lot, The Mystery of the Biggest Bank Heist in Australia's History by Susan Chenery. The reader was Shaka Cook. In professional sports, men tend to outperform women. They have physical advantages like strength and height that just make it easier for them to run faster and jump higher. But some reports suggest that when it comes to endurance sports, like ultramarathons and long-distance swimming, women actually have a physical and a psychological edge. In fact, women have even beaten men in some of these sports. In our next story, we take a closer look at what it takes to compete as writer Stephanie Wood enters the adventurous world of endurance swimmers. We're not off to a good start. I'm fumbling with my cap, the rubber clinging to my head lopsidedly, my hair straggling out. I take it off to start again, and the woman who has swum the fickle English Channel more times than any other human, the queen of the channel, instructs me in how to correctly apply a swimming cap. Chloe McArdle and I are going for an ocean swim at Bondi. She dives into the foamy sea ahead of me, more slender mermaid than broad-shouldered Amazonian. Knee-deep, I feel the current suck at my flesh. It's not one of Bondi's better days. Chest-deep, I realise I'm being dragged out, and my very amateur ocean swimming abilities are no match for this surf. Panic rises. McArdle is an impatient white cap in the distance. What was I thinking, suggesting a swim with Superwoman? By any objective measure, Chloe McArdle is also a crazy woman. Her commitment to putting herself through the demented levels of physical and mental torture almost inexplicable. I own crazy. I wear it as a badge of pride, she tells me later. On the 13th of October 2021, the 36-year-old Melbourne-born, Sydney-based ultra-marathon swimmer set a new world record, completing her 44th crossing of the English Channel in 10 hours and one minute. She left the water, stood on a French rock and raised her lanolin-smeared arms in victory. McArdle's 44 crossings of the world's busiest shipping highway include three non-stop doubles to France and back, and one triple non-stop to France, back to England, then to France again. The king of the channel, Englishman Kevin Murphy, has done only 34 crossings. McArdle has conquered other waters too. 
In 2014, she set a world record for the world's longest non-stop ocean swim, 124.4 kilometres from Ilu 3 Island in the Bahamas to the capital Nassau, a 41-hour, 21-minute journey. But the bare numbers and facts hardly tell McArdle's story. There are good times when the sea is as smooth as a pane of glass. The water clarity is extraordinary. Dolphins bounce around and she feels her technique is exquisite. But things can go bad quickly. In 2013, she jumped into the sea in Havana, Cuba, to attempt to be the first person to swim the 166 kilometres to the Florida Keys without a shark cage. After about 10 hours of heavenly swimming, with 40 or 50 hours ahead of her and dusk setting in, McArdle started seeing translucent shapes many metres below her. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then literally like 10 minutes later, it was like a blanket underneath me just rising up. And I'm like, oh, this is not going to turn out well. She was stung dozens of times by what is believed to have been a jellyfish, similar to a box or irukandji. Almost immediately, her right arm was paralysed and she could no longer use it to stroke. She called to her support team to get her out, but they didn't realise the extent of the problem and shouted affirmations, keep going, you can do it. In a marathon swim, you never get out the jellyfish was still rising. McArdle curled into a ball to reduce the surface area of her body. Once my head went under the water, they were like, we need to get her out. 20 minutes or so after the first sting, she was hauled out of the water onto the boat. I was whimpering. I was making a dying animal noise and they were picking the jellyfish stings off me. One person even pulled one out of my mouth like a bit of spaghetti. I just wanted to die. The pain was horrific. So many other stories. The first time she attempted the channel in 2009, she signed up for a double crossing and the captain of the support boat lost her for a time during a dark and stormy night when she was two-thirds of the way back to English shores. They drifted away and I was screaming out, don't leave me behind. I was terrified. She was battling two-metre waves and felt the ghostly presence of hulking ships, which take a kilometre to come to a stop. During her first attempt to triple cross the channel in 2011, the weather turned. She was floundering, barely stroking with one arm, and resisted her support crew's attempts to get her out. My brain was not functioning. When she was pulled out, she couldn't walk, was delirious and mumbling and dangerously hypothermic. In intensive care at Canterbury Hospital, a doctor told her that 30 more minutes in the water and she would have been dead. There are clues in McArdle's childhood to the woman she would become. Her role models, three older and sporty siblings, told her she could only play with them if she kept up. I wanted to be better at whatever game they were playing, or I wanted to be like them so I would push myself. When she was about seven, she insisted on pedalling with her 14-year-old brother on his paper round. He told her she couldn't because she wouldn't keep up. I'm like, no, I will keep up, I'm coming. Her parents were far from pushy, and when she started to swim competitively as a teenager, 
they refused to take her to swim training at 5am. They agreed to pick her up afterwards. On weekdays, a friend's mother took her, and on weekends, she'd set her alarm for 3.15am and rode her bike 9 kilometres. She remembers the day her mother came outside in a pink nightie and, unsuccessfully, tried to stop her pedalling off in the dark. McArdle feared she'd be in trouble when she got home. Instead, my dad's like, right, we're going to buy you some lights. But McArdle's times went fast enough to get her to the national championships in the open category, and her parents encouraged her to quit swimming to concentrate on her final two years of study. After school, she went to Monash University to do an arts degree. At some point, though, she had decided she wanted to be the best in the world at something. She tried triathlon but failed to reach an elite level. She did well in the Melbourne Marathon and started to think that distance might be where she could be the best. In 2007, she did a marathon swim, 11.3 kilometres between Frankston and Mornington. It was so wild and free. I had this beautiful connection with the water. About midway through the swim, she was smashing the field. The first woman, with only one man ahead of her. I just knew at that moment that I could be the best in the world at marathon swimming. She came second, after the male swimmer. Chloe McArdle's swimming career has not made her money. Most of her income comes from coaching others to swim the channel and motivational speaking. As a survivor of domestic violence, she also advocates for the criminalisation of coercive control. Ahead of every swim, she runs fundraisers, but the goal is the thing that pulls her forward. I set scary goals and then I'm so petrified I get out of bed in the morning. She has set herself another scary goal – In 2022, she wants to be the first person in history to swim the 92 kilometres from England to Belgium through the stormy, frigid waters of the North Sea. The idea is to get to the other end before I die. And if I don't end up in intensive care, it's a bonus. The Bondi surf that is making me panicky is like a soak in a bath for McArdle. She strokes back towards me and... With no small amount of embarrassment, I tell her I think we should grab a coffee instead. No dramas, she says as we reach the sand. As we towel off, she adds, I don't even like waves. That was, if I don't end up in intensive care, it's a bonus. The Beauty and Pain of Being the World's Best Endurance Swimmer by Stephanie Wood. The reader was Emily Elise. You know that famous proverb, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, you could say the same thing about motorcycles. I mean, when we think of motorcycles, we think of the sound, the... In this last story, we ask what happens to the freewheeling experience of motorbike riding when the engine goes quiet. The guttural roar rising from the startup pits was Flag Marshal Shane Adderton's cue. 
The 34-year-old technician had been involved in the motorbike world since he was a teenager. And volunteering at South Australia's racing mecca of Malala Motorsport Park always gave him a special thrill. When you hear them start up and leave the pits, that sound is something you look forward to, he says. That note of the exhaust, the emotion it creates, is part of the attractiveness. The vrooming from the pits also serves a more practical purpose. As a flag marshal, it was added to the signal to march out and wave bikes into position, highlighting any dangers and hazards on the track. One race day at Malala, Adderton missed his cue completely. In his first time officiating an electric motorbike race, Adderton learnt a valuable lesson. He could no longer rely on a deafening rumble of forewarning. I didn't know the electric bikes were even on the track until they'd gone past me, he says. Adderton, a technical cadet, loves to tinker around with his four bikes, but the unfamiliarity of the mechanical workings means he isn't sure if he'll be adding an electric model to his collection. He's not alone in his reticence. That guttural roar he loves so much has inspired not only art and culture, but thousands of clubs around the world full of people dedicated to cruising the roads with nothing between their body and an internal combustion engine except a good set of leathers. But those engines will eventually become a thing of the past, and motorbikes have to be part of that. Global Market Insights estimates the international market for electric motorbikes will grow from $42 billion in 2020 to $56 billion by 2027, but this analysis assumes increasing government support and stronger emission regulations. For such small vehicles, conventional motorbikes have an outsized environmental impact. Although petrol fuel cars emit greater quantities of pollution overall, they are subject to stricter exhaust regulations than their two-wheeled counterparts, which emit higher levels of hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide and nitrogen oxide. The quest for ever louder motors contributes to this problem, with the removal of emissions gear a popular modification by bikers to give their exhaust systems extra resonance. There's something guttural and intense about conventional motorbikes that reverberates through you, says Michelle Nazari. Obviously there's the carcinogenics and everything to think about, but there is a beauty to it too. Nazari used to be a bit of a petrol head herself, mucking around on farms with a two-stroke dirt bike, but then she dreamt up a plan to manufacture emissions-free motorcycles while riding through Colombia in 2010. She co-founded the Fons Moto Company, and these days gets a different kind of thrill out of her rides. When she gets a moment from her Redfern workshop, Nazari wheels out one of her electric motorbikes and escapes two hours south of Sydney to Macquarie Pass. It's one of the best rides in New South Wales, Nazari says, of the winding hairpin turns that lead up from the coastline to the spectacular reaches of the Southern Highlands. Without the distraction of engine noise or shuddering, Nazari says she feels more present in the moment, with the only vibration coming from the texture of the road. Not having any vibration in the powertrain, you can really focus on the quality of riding, not mucking around with the clutch, she says. When you go into some real winding bits, 
you can really feel it. On the safety concerns related to the silence of the bikes, Nazari counters that the quiet motor means the rider can be more alert to the dangers around them. You can hear everything going on around you and are a lot more present for that reason, she says. The Sydney-based electric motorbike company's social media feeds are littered with plenty of what Nazari describes as emasculating commentary about the lack of vroom. One of the most common questions we get from naysayers is, do you make one for men? She laughs. It's just trolls, I guess, with that masculinity thing around the sound. The comments veer from sexism and homophobia to a simple rejection of the silence. Stuff that, said one person's take. I'll stick with my 2000 R1 that makes me smile when I hear it rev up. Can't call yourself a petrol head if you like electric vehicles. Boris Mihailovic, one of Australia's leading writers about motorcycle culture, doesn't think he'll ever flick the switch to electric. The burly, tattooed author of At the Altar of the Road Gods has been a vocal critic of electric models, which he says feel more like appliances than true motorbikes. Motorcycling is a very sensual thing, he tells Guardian Australia. I love the noise they make. The first thing many people do when they buy a bike is can the exhaust system and put on a more tuneful exhaust. Ducatis, Harleys, they live on the amazing oral pleasure they give. Mihailovic, who was advising Australian e-motorbike manufacturer Savage Motorcycles on how to appeal to true petrol heads, says he personally needs that connection between exploding dinosaurs and the throttle, and estimates at least half of bikers will be resistant to the new technology. Motorcyclists are generally an ageing demographic, older guys, 50 and over. So e-motorbike manufacturers, he says, are looking to younger generations. Mihailovic suggests they will be more interested in the emissions side of things, as well as the instant rapid acceleration that electric offers. Younger people are happy to eschew the whole thunder and lightning thing and just ride on the lightning without the thunder, he says. But a deal breaker for many riders is the lack of charging infrastructure to facilitate the long haul road trips so iconic in biker culture. Range is a real issue outside cities, Mihailovic says. Meanwhile, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association's National Secretary, Dr Chris Jones, says federal and state EV policies in general overlook electric motorbikes at best, and in some cases deliberately exclude them. Governments have spent the last 30 years demonising motorcycles as coffins on wheels, he says. The last thing they want to do is promote such small, congestion-busting, efficient ways of getting around after demonising them for so long. Jones is an electric motorcycle enthusiast himself and was one of the engineers behind the Voltron Evo that dominated Australia's e-racing circuit in the mid-2010s. The ingenuity he saw on display in development of the races has him convinced that Australia could have a thriving electric motorbike industry if it was supported. Jones wants to see state government subsidies available for electric cars extended to motorbikes and stronger emission standards for conventional motorcycles. Others in the industry are lobbying for the removal of stamp duty 
a policy already in place in the ACT in New South Wales. Whatever support electric motorbikes get in the end, the open question remains whether bikers will be able to overcome the cultural attachment to the vroom. Back in Adelaide, Adderton hasn't totally ruled out getting an electric model. He's heard they accelerate a lot faster these days and could be good for city commutes. Adderton is also aware not everyone is quite so besotted with the rumble of engines as he is. I've got friends who have bike tracks in the hills and they make a lot of noise, he says. So yeah, I could see electric being good there, you know, out of consideration for the neighbours. That was Motorcycling is a Very Sensual Thing, Will Bikers Accept Losing Their Vroom? by Max O'Prey. The reader was Colin Smith. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I hope the rest of your weekend is filled with lots of adventures like these ones. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends about us and leave a review. It really helps us find more ears. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.